I'm really happy to be here again today with Lucas Van Oss. And uh, <clears throat> Lucas and I met on the channel. And Lucas has a wide ranging number of interests. And among them are Bitcoin and Austrian economics. And so we thought it would be fun to make today's episode primarily about those two things. I'm going to let Lucas introduce himself and then sort of drive the ship. And then I'll come along with whatever pops into my head. So Amazing. take it away, Lucas. Thank you, Karen. So my name is Lucas Van Oss. Um, I am 21 years old. I am an Egyptology student as of now. But as Karen said, I have a lot of different interests. So I allocate a lot of my time toward um, philosophy, also economics, Austrian economics, like you were saying. Um, I find money extremely interesting. And that may sound superficial at first, but I hope to show with this episode that it can actually go very deep and it can lead you down to a very interesting uh, rabbit hole. So I met Karen on the last episode and it's, uh, I hope it was interesting enough for some people to watch. Uh, it's a bit more about me and, and also about Karen actually. So it, I think it's a, it was a fun episode to record. So today we'll be talking about Austrian economics. I think we'll start with that and we're going to tie it into Bitcoin and Robert Breedlove. So Karen has had multiple episodes before about Austrian economics and I do really recommend those. And I think his name was Ira, who kind mm -hmm. of represented these ideas. I think he's quite learned in them. Um, so Austrian economics for a long time was just economics. Um, it was really only until I would say the first or the second world war, as far as I know, that this changed with the introduction of Keynesian economics. And I think Keynesian economics is something that more people are familiar with now. It's what's being taught in, in schools and universities. And they're kind of polar opposites in terms of understanding economics and money. Um, so the Austrians, they really focused on the individual. So they look at human action. They look at um, how human beings make choices. And they approach this uh, with an a priori theory. And this is polar opposite to Keynesian economics, which, which takes empiricism as its, I don't know how you would say this, Karen, as its foundational um, way of thinking about, <laughs> about it. That sounds good. Um, and so, Austrian so economics. Could you, could you just explain how that plays out? I mean, if you make empiricism foundational, what does that actually mean? Well, you don't have any foundational axioms or principles to go off of. So the Austrians, what they did is they, for example, they said that all humans engage in purposeful behavior. And um, they say that as economists, they can, they can make a theory with a priori assumptions and axioms that can help understand the data that is, that is being given. So when things happen in the economy, they can understand that through their theory. And the Keynesians, they, they take the empirical data, but they don't have anything to, to work with there. So it, it, it makes it harder to, to interpret what is actually happening. Um, well, so this is the basic argument at the ground of all worldviews, basically, right? I mean, the one worldview says that there is, um, there is some sort of fundamental value. There's some sort of fundamental axiom that all people yeah. You know, in, engage in purposeful behavior, 
That's quite a controversial statement to make in today's modern world, right? Yes, it actually is. The other side says, well, there's nothing but matter and particles. And uh, so we just have to look at what happens. We can't we can't judge it at all by any guiding principles. Thank you so much for for elaborating on that. That really helped me out because it also brings me to the the fundamental difference in between Keynesians and, and Austrians is that the Keynesians look at aggregates, they look at collectives, and the Austrians look at individuals. And I think that once you start thinking in aggregates and looking at people as as cohorts and groups that are predictable and you can apply formulas to them, it, it leads down to a dangerous path. And so the Austrians really reject this idea that you can treat economics like physics or mathematics, where there's there's just rules that where when this happens, that happens. Um, they say that another very important part of the Austrian economics is they say that value is subjective, and that is not some some relativism, moral relativism. It's it's that everyone has preferences, and that value is not inherent in objects. So it's not an a static objective value that is within things. So this this cup of water before the Austrian school, people would look at it and say, this could be five utils, for example. But this cup of water might be much more interesting to me because I'm thirsty than it would be to you because you're, you're quenched. So those are already some very, very key ideas. Um, There's another basic um, example that shows the subjective nature of value. And that would be, um, The, the objective theory of value, which is the Marxian perspective, is that mm -hmm. something has value based on how much material is in it and how much labor has been used to produce it. Yeah. And, and maybe some capital expenses around the periphery there. But you can put a lot of labor and effort into a mud pie and you can make your mud out of very expensive material and you still have nothing but a mud pie that yeah. isn't going to be of any value to an individual, <laughs> right? So... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it also, if you go by that theory of value, then Marxism makes a lot more sense. If if it is all labor, that also means that um, it is hard for human beings to extract value from one another. So then it turns oppressive quite quickly. Whereas when I trade with you, I can actually get value from you and you can get value from me. And it's a win-win situation. And I think that's yeah. fundamentally what Marx gets wrong is that he doesn't understand that that the free market is actually for human flourishing and not the opposite. It's, and that's tragic that, that these theories are coming back to the surface. So I'm trying my best to uh, articulate them and to understand yeah. them and to. Well, and I like the way you, you simplify it down to this, this um, very basic point because it makes it much, it makes it even easier for me to grasp the idea. Yep. When you said that all of a sudden what came into my head was, well, this is exactly the problem that happens in a lot of tech companies if the engineers um, get control of the direction of the company, because a lot of times engineers will have some idea that they're really fond of and they want to make that thing because they think it's cool and because they think whatever process is involved in making it is a cool process. Mm -hmm. But if there's no customers that want that thing, yep. right? And exactly. So, so a company has to have a balance of marketing and engineering driving the ship so that um, they can determine what the customer is actually looking for in order to be able to give them value. Yeah. Right. And it makes the entrepreneur basically 
a servant to the consumer. So if the entrepreneur does not do what the consumer wants, he or she does not get rewarded for this. And that's why I would say, I, I like that you also avoid this term capitalism and focus more on free markets. In a free market, people cater to each other's needs in order to become richer and more wealthy. And the more they produce, the more value there is. And that's also a key concept that the Austrians say that really wealth in a society is how much is being produced. And in the Keynesian school, it's much more about consumption. So they say when it's going bad, we need to consume more. And it already rings false to many people when they hear this. And it also why I think people find it so complex to understand Keynesian economics. It's because it seems so counterintuitive that we must consume more instead of produce more. Whereas the Austrians are very clear. They're like, you have to produce before you consume. And it seems super obvious to most people that this is reality, that this is how, how life works. But somehow by these complex formulas and equations, a lot of people now believe that consumption is actually necessary to get to get to economic growth. Um, okay, so there's two things there. One of those is the consumption issue, which I hope I can remember long enough to come back to it. But the other one is yeah. the the uh, the price issue, um, because price is what gives you the information to know mm. whether or not to produce more. So if the price is falling, they are not going to produce more of that thing because nobody wants that thing right now. Um, so when the price starts to go up, then we know, well, we need more of that kind of thing because obviously the supply is low and the demand is high. So the price is going up. So you get this information from the price, but on the Keynesian side, they don't, um, they don't seem to value that price as an information giver. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know exactly yes. what you'd call it. Um, and when you look only at the consumption side, that's where we get these statements. Like, uh, I think it was Nancy Pelosi who said something like, we have to increase the unemployment because that's how we're going to increase the, the economy. If we increase the amount of unemployment we give out, then people will spend more and then the economy will go back up again. And it's like, yes, even the terminology because, seems so vague. Well, because they don't, if, if you're putting out more money on, on the, the give side from the government, you're getting it from somewhere. So it's taking it from the production side or from, from people who might've spent the money in a, in a different way, which yeah. is, that's the whole broken windows fallacy, right? If, if you break windows, well, then that's good for the window pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. But it's starting to change in economics again, because you don't look at production. It's yeah. No, I completely agree with you. Yeah. I would say that, Right now, we're in a very distorted worldview, economically speaking. And I think it, when I went to school, uh, went to high school, and I got some of this Keynesian theory thrown at me, I was so confused by it. It didn't make any sense. And when I came out of school and I started learning for myself and I read the Austrians, it started clicking like this from the moment. And I think from the first moment, and I think it will be the same with most of you guys watching. If you have an economic background and you open the Austrian textbook for the first time, it will make so much sense. It's it's beautifully simple when you read it. And I also think it removes the boredom that people feel or the confusion that people feel when they approach economics. Because when I say to people that I'm interested in money and economics, they're like, oh, that sounds so boring. But Austrian <laughs> economics, it really hits at the core. Um, it hits at reality and thus it translates into other disciplines. And that's why I think you can really become a bit of a polymath when you start to study 
money and and economic at least austrian economics which mm-hmm. to me is just economics <laughs> proper well yeah. be- because it is i mean the way that i've always seen it it is sort of some version of ec- the it's an economic worldview that is sort of the worldview of rea- of actual reality i mean it's yes. <clears throat> it's economic reality where all the other things are some sort of system that's been imposed by human beings on top of that reality to try to have some sort of control over it. But you can't really control an economy for any length of time because it's always going to break out one way or the other. Exactly. It's with the market, you mostly leave it alone. It's what the Austrians say as well. They are very non-interventionist and it, it's c- comparable to nature, really. When we try to control nature too much, it ends up making it worse. The example is always the forest fires where in California, I think, this is the example that's always talked about, they try to stop all the smaller forest fires and they try to, um, by, by doing that, they try to avoid bigger forest fires. But what they actually do is they pile up the potential for a bigger forest fire. Whereas in Mexico, for example, they just let the small forest fires burn and that that lowers um, the eventual blow. And it's the same with economies. If you delay volatility, if you try to always keep the economy stable in this left hemispheric way where you just want to have it your way and you want to control it, it delays the volatility and it goes bust in a much bigger way. And it's what a lot of people are fearing is going to happen um, in the coming years. Um, so, yeah. So which, which one of the, the Austrian economics books would you recommend as a first go for somebody who's not familiar with economics? I find it a bit hard to answer. I think the Tao of Capital by Mark Spitznagel is a bit more accessible. It's a modern, uh, it's a modern thinker, but he tries to understand these uh, Austrian economists ideas um, and condense them into a bit of a, a more accessible book. And then I would move on to human action by Ludwig von Mises. It's really the, the main book that I would recommend to most people. And it's, it can be complex, but if you go through it slowly and just look up words that you don't understand, I think it's, it's quite understandable. And again, because it maps onto reality, it will make quite a lot of sense, but the Tao of capital is one that I would recommend for a starter. Did you ever read The Road to Serfdom by Hayek? I might have. I don't, I've heard a lot about it. Uh-huh. I don't think I've read it, but I think I've read Hayek, another book of his, uh-huh. but I'm not sure. Yeah, it, The Road to Serfdom is um, very dense, very difficult, but mm. filled with lots of good stuff. Um, and and uh, he's basically just talking about what happens when you start trying to control the economy around the periphery and Yep. Obviously, we have these perfect examples of it in Nazi Germany and in mm. the Soviet Union. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and what's coming in the the U.S. <laughs> I hope not. We're starting. We're starting down that road. So, um, be, and that was one of the things I wanted to say when you talk about um, Austrian economics focusing on non-interventionism. There are problems, though, aren't there? When um, you you talked earlier about entrepreneurs. I forget the exact phrase you used. An entrepreneur is uh, servant. A servant. We happen to have some entrepreneurs right now who 
maybe started out as servants and now they're sort of ruling the world. So, yes. so what do you do there? How did, how did that happen and how can we overcome that? How can we overcome that is a more complex question, I would say. But how did we get there is I think that this is a lot of uh, public-private cooperation that's going on that could cause these people to become so rich. I'm not, I think that the Austrians view on also uh, patents and containing intellectual property is quite negative. They don't think that's a very good thing. Um, but I'm, I want to make sure I don't misspeak there. But I think that, that this was a, a lot of this is cooperation with the government. And now you also see it with all the policy and all the almost self-censorship from these entrepreneurs where this is happening. Um, and it's, it's, it's very messy. I think similar things happen in the university system, mm -hmm. but I'm not an expert on this, so I don't want to, mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to misspeak about it. A bigger question is how do we get out of it? It's a very excellent questions, uh, question because the, the Austrians often deal with um, kind of a perfect market like theoretically, of course, they speak about a free market. And now that it's gone so messy, it's uh, it's difficult to see where it's going to go. For example, in the Soviet Union, of course, it went absolutely bust. I think in, in, the, U in the US, you have mostly a free market system still. But this is, uh, it's gotten very, very messy right now. And um, I also understand really the the critique I see in this little corner of the internet on what they call capitalism or late stage capitalism, mm -hmm. what it has turned into. But I always want to emphasize that this is not because of the free market. I really think that there's a lot of nasty stuff going on um, between governments and, and these companies as well. And the, these companies have almost turned into the wrong sort of governments. It's, uh, it's, it's come to a point where I think that the, the power that, that something like Meta or Facebook has or Twitter is almost as big as many nation states if not already, mm -hmm. um, how you tackle that is a, it's a very good question. I think you need a lot of bright minds on it. And I'm glad to see that a lot of people in this little corner are focusing on understanding these problems. Also AI governance, all these things in such a changing world. Um, I would listen to them <laughs> if I were you. Well, I, I think some of it is that, <clears throat> Things will collapse under their own weight sometimes. And uh, like the only reason Facebook is still functional is that they started expanding into other realms because if they had just stayed with the original model, all the young people abandoned Facebook 20 years ago. <laughs> and, and then the middle-aged people abandoned Facebook, you know, five years ago, and then the elderly are abandoning Facebook. And so pretty soon, you know, I still have a Facebook account, but I haven't looked at it for a year. Yeah, and, and before then, I was only looking at it once or twice a month. And it's completely irrelevant now in terms yeah. of that. But then Facebook has this whole other thing that they're doing, all these other little um, everybody's everybody's got their space program. Everybody's got their, you know, um, it's, it's really funny because they all started out as these individual silos. Google was the search silo and Facebook was the social silo and Twitter was the, you know, communication silo and everybody had their little silo that they were doing. And now they're all becoming space explorers. Oh yeah. 
and Facebook ate everything as well. Like they ate WhatsApp, they ate Snapchat, they ate all these all these little smaller companies. Yeah. And then you have a big, big organism. Now, in in forty years ago, that would have been seen as monopoly, and the government would have been doing something about that to squash the monopoly, like they did with uh, with Bell, um, Bell Telephone became a gigantic behemoth like that, taking everything in and the government made them split it up into, into divisions, which all became separate companies and then all began competing with each other. Um, I'm not sure why that monopoly thing hasn't been pushed against these big behemoth companies. I'm also not sure how you would approach that, breaking that up. I also really don't know if it's a, if it's a good thing speaking from the Austrian camp, uh, but it's such a specific case that I find it hard to to provide you with a lot of wisdom on it. Yeah, well, do uh, the Austrians say anything about monopoly at all? They do speak about monopoly. I was recently rereading uh, Human Action, and I read a bit about about monopolies and, and monopoly prices, and um, they actually say also about monopolies that. Oftentimes you can have a monopolist, but if he wants to have uh, full profit or good profit, he still has to cater to the consumer in some way. Because if he's going to bid it super high, then people are just not going to buy it. It turns very iffy when it's a it's a product that people absolutely need. Then it gets very dangerous. But I'm I'm pretty sure that they're mostly non-interventionists about about these these uh, these situations. Well, I think one of the reasons that that doesn't apply in this case is that we are not paying for these monopolies. Yeah. We're not paying for Google with in any way that we can see what the price is that we're paying. We can't see the price. They can see the price because they're using our data. They're using our likes and dislikes. <clears throat> they're using our search terms are using all of these things as, as data. And so they're getting value, but we're not paying in a way that makes a price that can be information for the consumer as to whether to stop using something. Mm -hmm. and so we've continued to use products that maybe aren't in our best interest because we don't see that, that price value, um, thing as clearly as we would if we were like for example here's here's another situation where years ago in this country we used to pay for our own medical care before there were big insurance things involved so i had a baby when i was 21 and my hospital bill which included all the nine months of prenatal care was 150 dollars now, wow. if you have a baby today, it's probably $150,000. Now, inflation does not account for that 1,000x. Oh, no, absolutely not. Not in any way. But what does account for it is the distance between the consumer and the payer. Because now there's all these layers of government regulation and um Insu not only insurance, but I'm not even paying for the insurance because my husband's company is paying for the insurance. So we don't see any of those price indicators in our relationship with the medical. 
And we don't even go through the bill and look and say, oh, well, they shouldn't be charging me this much for that thing because it's all taken care of somewhere else. There's yeah. no connection between the price and the payer. And I think that's exactly what's happening with these these big silos is that we're not, we don't have price as a, as a value indicator. No, we are, we are the product. Like you say, yeah. we're the data. I think with these social media companies and social media in general, it's something that is so new that we really don't know how to deal with it. Like we're paralyzed, we're hooked. And in terms of what they do to our systems, they're, they're like drugs. Um, they're very, very addictive kind. And I think it's going to take a while for the culture to, to basically understand how to deal with it. I think you already see a lot of movements of people trying to abstain from it. I myself um, had a phase of my life where I was very addicted by these things. And then I got into, as you know, from the last episode into the self-help section of YouTube. And um, a lot of people there spoke about just deleting it all. So I deleted all my social media. I just kept the text and I turned off all my notifications. I still never have any notifications on. And so a lot of it, I think, is coming back to the individual. Like, how do you deal with this? Um, because they're not going to stop coming and the internet is not going to go anywhere. I think that a lot of us have to have to really learn how to understand our relationship to them. So Austrian economics would push us towards a greater sense of personal responsibility because it's based on individual action rather than aggregate. Possibly. I'm not sure what they would. This is my personal opinion. I'm not sure if uh -huh. that I mean, of course, because it's their fundamental axiom, you could you could make that link. I think they're they're generally in favor of instead of treating us like like sheep that have to be guided and that have to be. Um, well, I don't want to say manipulated, but kind of, yes, and, and banning certain things for our own good. They say that the, I think that they would say that the individual um, has the the will and the possibility and the ability to to make their own choices and i also think that because we live in such a confused world right now which is also economically confused like i said before um we live in a time of high inflation like you said the austrians like to use the terms low and high time preference low time preference meaning that you have a more long-term vision and high time preference, meaning you have a more short-term vision and they link the integrity of the money uh, to these time preferences. So basically they're saying when you live in a time of high inflation, you have a very short-term outlook on life. So you, you don't think on the long-term, you don't think about your health very much. You don't think about your, your consumption of, of content online very much. So I think also that with addressing the problem of our money, um, you could fix a lot of these issues and you could get a more long-term horizon about your life. And then you could also learn the proper relationship with a lot of these addictive things, substances, social media. Okay. Well, I want to get into that thing about fixing your relationship with money, but, but just before we do that, you said that low time preference is the long-term outlook. Yeah. It's a bit confusing. High time preference is a short-term outlook. I get the long-term outlook and short-term outlook idea, but could you connect up how low time preference, what that means in terms of long-term outlook and how high time preference is related to short-term outlook? What does that mean, high time preference? It's funny because it, every time people try to explain this, it's always very confusing because low and high have these 
these uh, these connotations with them. Thinking off the top of my head, if you have a high time preference, maybe you find it harder to delay gratification. Thus, you have a high preference for now. But honestly, I'm just <laughs> I'm riffing. So, we so usually you, just directly so make link. So it's not very clear what they why they're tying time low and high into this time so time what does time preference mean i think it's your preference maybe it's your preference for your time horizon but honestly whenever someone speaks of these terms they directly link it to short and long term and i think it would have been a much more graceful uh it would have been much more graceful terminology when they got up with the the theorem because uh -huh. uh, i think it would just suffice to say uh long-term view short-term view uh being able to delay gratification or not being able to uh, yeah well i mean that would certainly tie in with jordan peterson's whole thing about how when when you're faced with a choice <clears throat> it's way better for you if you look at that choice in terms of what's good for me now what is should also be good for me in a week should also mm -hmm. be good for me in a year in five years in 10 years so my choices are based on this long-term outlook of what's good for me and then in addition to that it has to be what's good for me what's good for um <clears throat> my significant other what's good for my family unit what's good for my neighborhood what's good for my community and so it's it's working out who I am in space and who I am in time. And those things, in a sense, it's having to give, give value to yourself and to your existence in terms of your relationships with others and with, with the future, right? Your future self. Yeah. It also yeah. makes me think of the imaginal John Favakey's work where he also, he also speaks a lot about, he also has the state, the saving uh, idea. I don't know if you're familiar with him. No, no. I, well, I'm familiar with John, but I don't know this. So tell me. The it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, so so he, he says that he pitches the idea. I think it's an actual occurrence that, that happened. And so he says, there's a group of academics and they get this pitch from someone and they say, you have to save for reasons A, B, and C. Um, they show the graphs. They're all convinced like they have to save this much money and it's good for them, for themselves in the future. And six months later, they check with the academics and no one, no one has done it. No one saves. Then they try again. And instead of showing all the graphs, they say, try to imagine yourself in the future, your future self being older and look at them as if they were a family member, a loved one, someone you really care about. Really, really think about them, really try to imagine them. That's the imaginal he speaks about. And what happens then is they actually start saving because they, they enter into a, I would say a relationship with that future self and identification maybe, and they start to care for them more. I always thought that was a striking example. I tried to apply it to my own life as well. I think it's very useful to be aware. Uh, well, what's very interesting is why that's not just a natural bent, but it isn't. I mean, I almost never think of myself. When, <laughs> you know, I, I may, maybe it's because we have some idea that that we're supposed to value others higher than we value ourselves or something. And so it's easier for us to think of taking care of someone else than it is to think of taking care of ourselves. 
But obviously, you know, it's the old put your gas, put your oxygen mask on first. You're not going to be of any benefit to anybody five years from now if they're having to take care of you rather than you, you know, being able to take care of them. So um, it's really a very simple idea, but it's so hard for us as human beings to not only grasp, but to administer in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also why, well, the Austrians, they stress so much this idea of, of long and short-term review. And this is also why I think that we are at this spot where it's hard for us to, to save for the future and to think about the future. Because right now it takes two households to have a child. It takes everything and more to find a house. Um, prices are absolutely ridiculous. So how are you going to think about the future, saving for the future uh, or your future self if you don't have the time to think about it, if you don't have the outlook to think about it, the means, the resources. Um, so well, and there are people who are making it their entire life's purpose to terrify the younger generation into believing that there is no future. So yeah, it's absolutely um, tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's get into this thing about fixing your relationship with money, because I know okay. quite a bit to offer there as well. Yeah, so this is the light part of the conversation. Um, if if Bitcoin wasn't here, which is what we're going to speak about, I would not be as optimistic as I am, and I'm extremely optimistic. So just for the people at home, um, it's not the end of the world. There's a future. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Robert Breedlove. The talk you had with Sevilla and Ira, Mm -hmm. If I'm correct, was about metaphysics, uh, Robert Persig's work, metaphysics of quality, Jordan Peterson, and Austrian economics. It ties those things together. And you discuss Robert Breedlove's episode with Mike Hill, I believe. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting episode. I recommend you all to, to watch it. But a bit about Robert Breedlove. He is a freedom maximalist as he calls himself. So he tries to maximize freedom in the world. He thinks that's fundamental to, to human flourishing. He has a show, it's called the What is Money Show. And um, in this show, he simply asks the question, what is money? And it has led him down to a very interesting rabbit hole. The show is centered around Bitcoin um, and money, but it goes much deeper than that. So he speaks really about philosophy. He's also had Peugeot on, Verveke, Peterson, um, it's really more of a universal outlook on these things. And I think that more and more it's becoming necessary for people in economics to get a more broader understanding of the world, um, to actually understand economics as well, because again, it's human action. So it's, it encompasses a lot of things. Um, but yeah, a bit more about Breedlove. He used to be an accountant and a hedge fund manager and I think upon encountering Bitcoin and Peterson's work and everything, he started to, to really shift his life around and now he's an educator. So Robert believes that Bitcoin is going to fix a lot of our troubles in the world because he sees fiat money. Fiat money is money by decree. Fiat, it is money that is not of intrinsic value. So I think a lot of people in the US are more familiar with this than they are in Europe, that we used to be on a gold standard. And since 1971, we, we've been off of that. He believes that that change going on to fiat money has been uh, 
disastrous for society and it has caused a lot of inflation. This is all connected to Keynesian theory where inflation is a good thing and it's juxtaposed to the Austrians who believe inflation is absolutely bad. And before I continue, I'd like to also stress that inflation has become a very weird term for people because it used to mean something completely else than it does now. Uh, the original meaning is simply inflation of the money supply. Thus, you make when you make more money, um, you have inflation. <laughs> if you make it out of thin air, you have inflation. You have more supply of money. It's inflation. It's a bad thing. And now it's become more when prices rise, it's only inflation. But this also means that when you make more money and innovation is also playing its role, the prices can remain stable. Um, but there's actually inflation of the money supply and it usually shows up in houses um, and all these other things that are absolutely scarce and important. But to get back to it, um, Robert sees, sees Bitcoin as fixing a lot of these issues because before the discovery of Bitcoin, there was not a lot of hope for people in the sense that they had an alternative to put their wealth into. Because in a fiat system, in a system where money gets created out of thin air, uh, the people that hold that money, they lose its value over time. It's leaky money. It is money that has no underlying basis. There is no gold standard. And every single experiment in history where they've gone off the gold standard or they've gone off any intrinsic value in their money, it goes bust. And it goes bust in usually a quite nasty way. And it's often the end of, of empires. And Bitcoin offers an alternative. So what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a de decentralized, encrypted digital network. It is decentralized because it does not have a CEO. It does not have a head above it. It is not a company. It is a network that is completely distributed. And I hope to not get too technical here because I know um, sometimes it's a bit difficult to to understand Bitcoin, but it's actually quite simple. The fundamental things you have to understand about Bitcoin is that it has a limited supply. So it is absolutely scarce. There is no way for anyone on earth to increase the eventual supply of Bitcoin, which is 21 million Bitcoins. And this means you don't have the same problem as you do with fiat currencies as we have had throughout history where rulers can just decide to make more money. And this always leads to disaster. Um, so the promise of Bitcoin is that, that this doesn't have to be the case. And by engaging with Bitcoin, by owning a bit of the Bitcoin network, so you own um, one of 21 million, you will always own one of 21 million. And that is not going to change. That is. And it's also when people get into Bitcoin, um, it incentivizes other people to also get into it because it's a feedback mechanism which, which drives the price up because it's a fixed supply. If it was a bigger supply, then you could have a, a different pricing mechanism. Um, but yeah, that is a bit of the foundation. If there are any questions. Yes, I do have some questions. <laughs> Good. I was expecting that. <laughs> because some problems occur to me. I mean, yes. and they're not, these aren't new ideas. Um, three problems popped up in my head. I'll just tell you what the three are and you can take, you can tackle whichever one you want to first. One is um, 
the problem with false competitors, people coming in and saying, oh, they've also got a digital currency and they have a different system and people are, because, because Bitcoin is very difficult to understand, people are easily trapped into trying out these false competitors and losing their shirts. The second one is um, because it's hard to understand, I don't know that it's scalable for just average people. I don't know that I would be able to manage having a Bitcoin account. And if I were, would I lose my ID number and then I've lost everything? And then the third one is um, the cost of mining is very energy intensive, as I understand it, the mining of Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to walk through them one by one, starting with false competitors. So as a lot of people know, crypto is a term that gets thrown out, uh, thrown around a lot. So you have Ethereum, for example, that is the main, um, I don't even want to call it a competitor. It's a, to me, it's a different thing. So like I said before, Bitcoin is a decentralized system. It does not have a CEO. It does not have a creator. It does not, not have anyone individually controlling the network. There's no group of people that can alter the network. People can try to make a new version of it, but they won't have anyone going onto this network. It's like creating your own version of English. Like, good luck. It's, it's not really <laughs> going to work if you use words that don't exist. Um, so I'll try to avoid the technical aspect of it because um, it can be a bit confusing. But yeah, so it's a decentralized network and something like ethereum for example there's a ceo team behind that that can completely change the software in two seconds they can they can steal your money it's basically the fiat system copied um it's the exact same thing they can increase inflation some of them think inflation is a good thing as well they can make more of this i don't know what to call it a cryptocurrency i guess make more units of it um Sometimes people compare them to sort of businesses, whereas Bitcoin should be more understood as a digital form of gold. It is more of an asset, is more of a uh, of a network um, without any rulers. So it is hard to understand technically, but uh, what a lot of people say in the space is that pain is information for people. So. People in Guatemala, people in Venezuela, people in, you name it, countries with hyperinflation, they start to learn very quickly that their money is is worthless. And for them to understand Bitcoin usually takes a lot less time. The technical aspects of getting your own wallet is, I think, quite simple to understand if you have the right resources. Um, one YouTube video away could explain it to you in, in, about, in about five minutes, I think. Um, but I also think that the technology around that is improving to become more accessible and more convenient for people who are still very much in early stages, uh, which also makes Bitcoin more volatile, as a lot of people often say. So I also want to say to people, like, when you hear me say all these things, don't expect to, <laughs> to buy it and become rich tomorrow. It's really not how it works. Um, and then you said people can lose money you can, lose your ID. you can lose your ID number. <laughs> yeah, so you can forget your password, uh, for example, yeah. or you can forget your your code. And but the I, passwords are complicated, aren't they? The key is very long. 
Well, it's 16 words. Um, most people, they keep it on a piece of paper or they memorize it themselves. I would say that is, it is a cost, but it's, I mean, compared to everything else and compared to what you get for it, I think it's a cost worth bearing, uh, especially considering you could forget your password for most things or you could, uh, I mean, you could lose things in so many ways, whereas Bitcoin to me is one of the hardest things to to take from you or to, to or to lose if you take the proper precautions. Um, but of course it takes a bit of time, yes. I think just writing it down, your code, um, is already can already do a lot of good. Uh, yeah. Um, then the cost of mining. Yes, yeah, so the Bitcoin network is secured by miners. These are not people that dig holes in the ground. These are people with uh, energy intensive computers that you, the analogy that usually works for people is it's buying lottery tickets. So these computer computers, they buy a form of lottery tickets. And um, when they get one, they mine a block and that helps verify the system. So they get, they get rewarded for um, expanding energy into the system. And this energy is expanded to verify the system. So basically they have the incentive to verify the system and they will get a reward for that. That's, that's the basic idea to understand it. It's a bit more technical than that. Um, but it's basic, basically the cost of, of verification. And so it helps with the, the strength of the network. Okay, and, so let's talk a bit about this idea of verification. Well, were you going to say more about verification? No, no, go ahead. Um, I was thinking about this in terms of another idea. Um, So, and this this idea is not connected to Bitcoin at all, but it is connected to the idea of gold. And so I think maybe <clears throat> the two things might connect up somewhere. So when when gold was the standard, and which it has been throughout most of history, so you can look at, Etymologically, the, the word for weight and the word for value in the past was connected. So when, when C.S. Lewis wrote his essay, The Weight of Glory, he's talking about um, glory and worship and weight as having a connection somehow. So, but what happens when we remove the concept of weight from the concept of value? If the two are, are no longer connected, is there anything that that falls out of that? Um, okay. When value is no longer weighed in the balance, and so I, I just want to tie in one other thought here, and that is, I heard a John Lennox message yesterday, and he was saying that when we spend too much time relativizing the absolute, what comes next is we end up absolutizing the relative, mm. and. I mean, there's a lot buried inside of that. I don't know if it brings up any thoughts for you, but I, I thought there was some connection between the two. So. Yeah. Okay, so I think to, to speak about this, we got to understand where gold gets its value. Um, a framework that Breedlove uses to understand where money gets its value consists of the, visit, the visibility, uh, portability, scarcity, 
um, durability. Durability, yes. And the last one is, gosh, I just wrote a paper about this. It's incredible. Uh, oh, uh, recognizability. Did I say that one? Yeah. So you said visibility, portability, scarcity, durability, and recognizability. Yeah. So the first one was the visibility. Um, gold scores very high on a lot of these dimensions. And because it's, of course, extremely durable, gold is impossible to break, which also ties into the weight of it, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's such a powerful thing. It lasts over time, whereas paper money, it just disappears like that. It's extremely recognizable as well. Um, portability, it scores a bit lower on, especially compared to, to paper money, which is also why I think paper money started to replace gold, um, historically speaking. And what do we have left? Scarcity. Gold is extremely scarce um, because it's very hard to create more of gold. To mine gold is an energy intensive uh, action. So when people see gold, they think, oh, it's so, it's so valuable. It's shiny, all these things. But, but to really understand where its value comes from, a lot of that is this, this almost absolute scarcity aspect, um, the durability aspect. Um, mm -hmm. Understanding it through this framework, I think, allows you to understand why, why Bitcoin is actually in many ways superior to gold, at least in my opinion it is. Because gold is near nearly scarce, but you can still make more of it. For example, I think it was even recently where they found a big supply of gold. Um, um, I thought it was in Africa somewhere. And I think you spoke in your episode with Ira as well about when the Spaniards went to the Aztecs and they recovered a lot of gold. Mm. Um, the supply increased like this as well. And what happens, gold loses quite a bit of its value. Bitcoin, however, is more absolutely valuable because of this cap of 21 million. So I know a lot of people get kind of scared when they're like, this is digital, this is nothing. But actually, it is more suited um, and it is, it is better um, fulfilling these characteristics of money and even of value, you could argue, because it is more portable, I mean, it's digital, so you can move it across oceans in a, in a matter of, of minutes. Uh, because it is more scarce, uh, because eventually it will become more recognizable, it's, it's a universal unit. And, and so that's what I would say to, to what you say about weight and about relativizing the absolute. I think in many ways, Bitcoin is more, more scarce and, and not a derivative or a, or a lesser good than gold. Um, yeah. Well, so one of the things about gold is, there's, as I understand it, <clears throat> it's probably more, but there are at least two ways you can verify gold. One is to verify it by weight, because, you know, in early days when they wanted to cause inflation, they would just scrape a little bit off of a coin and yeah. save that dust somewhere else for something else. Yeah. And then the coin just weighed a little bit less but you could still verify by weight whether or not that coin had the value that it was supposed to have. Or you could add a little stuff in there like 18 karat gold or you know, 20 karat gold or something like that rather than 24 karat gold. And so you can corrupt it a little bit by adding something to it. So it, in that case, it can be verified chemically, right? Um, but you talked about verifying Bitcoin, what, what is the process of verifying? How do they verify? 
Well, I guess this ties back into the the mining aspect of this. So the mine the miners by exerting this energy to to solve these puzzles or to to buy these lottery tickets, um, they they get the blocks and then the rest of the network verifies it. So basically, all, all the different um, decentralized I want to say nodes are responsible for verifying this. And it's only when, when it's um, globally verified that the transaction goes through. So in many ways, the, the verification process is about as good as it gets. Many people look at it as the, the most trustworthy network ever made. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm trying to get a picture here. So help, help me out. <laughs> I, I just, uh, made a transaction with Bitcoin. I just bought something with, with Bitcoin. And uh, that means I put my Bitcoin out into the network and I'm hoping to get a product in return for it. <clears throat> so my Bitcoin is out there in the network and somehow it gets into one of these blocks. Oh, the Bitcoin can go from one wallet to another. So you can send Bitcoin for transactions. Basically, okay, so when, I'm an address, when, you're an when address. When you said that the, the miners are that a transaction doesn't go through until the miners have verified the block. What did you mean by that? If it gets it go from wallet to wallet, then what? Yeah, it, get, it gets honestly quite technical here. It's also really not my expertise. Um, but also this is only right now that this, but it's happening like this as I'm describing it, because right now there's still supply being added before we hit the 21 million um, peak, let's say. So they, they collect blocks that are unleashed from, from the system itself. But I guess the, what, what happens is the transaction fee um, is what costs energy for the, for the people transacting. And that is where the verification takes place. So I want to make sure I don't misspeak here because I do think the miners are involved in the verification of the transactions. Um, but that might be separate with the blocks from the from the transaction fee. And <laughs> as you can tell, it gets a bit too technical uh, at this point. Well, this is my big concern. If, I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I'm I old, looking... so, th so no, things don't come very easy to me. But, no, I understand. But I mean, there are a lot of people for whom some of these ideas would be too technical to be able to be able to use this. But with gold, anybody could have a little bag of gold dust that they could use in 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 the event of a complete and utter economic collapse at least with gold people would actually have something with which to transact regardless of what their mental capacity is to understand all this complicated stuff uh, that's why i don't think you have to really understand the the verification process on a technical basis i also think it's really difficult for people uh, even myself and i've i've heard it explained to me probably dozens of times I still can't fully explain it and it, I also don't think it's the most important aspect of it but I can, I can understand that it could weigh into your trusting of of this network I would mostly say about this that even the opposers of Bitcoin and the people that, that really try to attack it vehemently um, they never argue about this aspect of it they argue about many other aspects so I guess by virtue of it never being a problem in even debates with people that are <laughs> completely against it. I've never really spent a lot of time on the technical aspect also because it's really not my 
uh, my expertise and I'm not. Okay. Well, so bottom line is you trust, you trust this whole verification system to be adequate. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's, it's also, it's always described even again by the people that oppose it as the best and most secure network for, for transactions that exist. So it's much more secure than the verifications that occur when you make a bank transaction, when you go to the grocery store and you just, because we also don't really understand how this verification system works when we use our credit cards, yet we yeah. use it every single day. So I guess that's that's a bit of an analogy that could yeah, work that, with it. That's true. That's true. <clears throat> All this stuff goes out into cyberspace and somehow magically. Yeah, honestly, it's a bit of a... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because in the old days, sometimes. when when something like that would happen, there would actually be money moved from one bank to another bank. Yeah, they'd actually move the money every night. They'd move it back and forth, but there's no money moving anymore. It's just all, you know, for people to say that Bitcoin is just digital. Well, the money we use is just digital. Right? Yeah, so. and I also want to I want to respond as well to because I listened to your conversation with Brad and Ira. And I listened to some of your concerns you had there. So one was that you spoke about scalability. Mm -hmm. And here we are already understanding Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, which I want to stress it really is not. And I don't think that is its value proposition either. So I don't expect us to all be uh, exchanging Bitcoin all the time. I don't think that works. This network is slow. Um, as Brad said, I think in the in the talk, you don't you're not able to like transact very quickly with people and do it globally all around the world at the same time. The network cannot handle that. What I think people should understand Bitcoin as is a store of value, uh, which is one of the properties of money. So when systems like ours right now, the fiat system, when our money goes broke, we want to have things to put our wealth and our money into uh, in order for us to conserve our wealth and Bitcoin seems to be the best bet, the best bet on the long term. And I say this because of this absolute scarcity component. Because we are tied at 21 million, if you put your money in now and you keep it in for years, um, you can count on the strength of the network being the most secure network ever made, a very boring network, a very slow network, but a decentralized network without any um, CEO or master to it. Um, and one that has positive incentives for everyone. So if there's a billionaire right now and he wants to make sure that he doesn't get financially um, compromised, as happened with the Russian oligarchs, is he going to put his money into dollars? Or does he keep it in his own currency? Because that's just going to be taken from him. Does he put it into gold? Can be confiscated by the government. Does he put it into houses? Same deal. It's very easily confiscatable. So especially when we're getting into politically messy situations, Bitcoin is an apolitical, decentralized um, opportunity for people to put their money in and it's a store of value. And by virtue of people going into this, the price will only go up. And so everyone that goes into it attributes to, um, contributes to the network, I should say. And, and yes, I hope I didn't lose my train of thought there. <laughs> well, it oh, yeah. did pop into my head that this would be very effective um, store of value for criminal enterprises. Yes, of course. As with everything, the, there is a double-edged sword. Uh, but I think given the state of our money and given that criminals use 
a lot of different things. I mean, there's a lot of also smaller crypto coins that they can use that have better privacy, for example, whereas here every transaction is recorded on the blockchain and bigger ones could pop out and sketchy ones could pop out, but it is privacy protective. Um, of course, there could be criminals on the system, but I think this is one that it's absolutely worth it. Same with the energy expenditure. I, I often try to uh, hear people uh, try to defend Bitcoin's energy usage. I would say to that that it's absolutely worth it and absolutely necessary. Um, and I would also say that if you try to move, for example, gold over the ocean, uh, you expend so much more energy. It takes days. It takes a lot of manpower. It takes a lot of machinery. And I should really say that Bitcoin is something that you don't transact with a lot. You can think about buying it a lot, but you don't sell it a lot for sure. Um, so you should think of bigger transactions um, less frequently. Um, but with that, it's the most efficient way to, to, to do that. And I think it, it can help so many people, especially people that, again, are in tricky financial situations, political situations that have an oppressive government, people that are denied access to, to credit cards, to bank accounts. Um, it's, a, it's a way out. And so I would say the main value proposition is as a store of value. That's, I guess, the most important point. So how liquid is it if you needed to divest and if you needed the money? How, how easy is it right to now? out again? If I want to get Bitcoin right now, it would take me... Um, if you want to 30, get your money out of the Bitcoin. Maybe 30 minutes. Depends. Depends. And because we know it didn't work. Whatever that company was, it just went down the down the tubes a month mm -hmm. or two ago which company that, hmm? well which it, was company? That, it was that guy that sam gottman fried or yes, something yes something like sam bagman fried i think yeah he was a crypto uh criminal he's yeah. got nothing to do with bitcoin that man yeah but i mean he, <laughs> the, it certainly was when people wanted to get their money out of that it was gone yeah no that's different but the, i also want to stress this karen that People, they have their money on exchanges, for example. They don't have the actual Bitcoin. It's very important when you get into Bitcoin that you get your own wallet. So what people do is they don't uh, invest the time to get their own wallet and memorize their own uh, words, for example. And they go on a website and then they buy it from the website and they have it on the website. But if the company goes broke, you go broke. Um, Bitcoin is a way to avoid this third party um, risk, let's say. You always got to trust some business. I got to trust my bank right now to have my money. I'm sure that if most all mm -hmm. of us in my country right now want to get our money, they wouldn't have it. With Bitcoin, I am absolutely sure. So this this is really properly understood as a as a long term thing to have and a a very secure way to 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 store wealth. And I can't think of anything else to put money and value into that will last me as long or that will be as secure um, okay, as so, this. Okay, so just to be clear, you you have a direct wallet to Bitcoin. You don't have it in a, in an exchange or in a no, Bitcoin bank. absolutely not. Like okay. Because then you're subject to the risk of that company going bankrupt or whatever happens regulated, you can, you can imagine. So you're saying that Bitcoin is a way to avoid oppressive governments. So... Hear me out for just a second. I'm, I'm just being a devil's advocate here. No, absolutely. I love it. Um, the other day, Jordan Peterson was being interviewed by some woman and 
she was asking him, do you think it's possible that Canada could go the way of China and end up having a social credit system? And he said, no question. He said, you know, if there's another crisis of some sort or even a manufactured crisis, um, people will willingly accept having a digital passport, maybe even having the digital passport injected into their skin or something just to make life easy because whatever makes life easy, people will jump into it, right? <clears throat> yep, yep. So if it comes to the place that we all have a digital passport and then the government says, you know what, for the good of the people, we have to take over Bitcoin. And then the only way to transactions can be made will be with Bitcoin. There won't be any more money or fiat money or gold or anything else, only Bitcoin. Is that possible or not possible? I mean, Jordan Peterson didn't say anything about Bitcoin. This is just something that ran through my head. No, I don't think so. Also, there's no way for a government to control Bitcoin. The network is simply too decentralized. If you if you want to say, they call this sometimes a 51% attack. If you want to completely take over the system, it would take an impossible amount of energy to do that like there's no nation state that can do this and if anything the first nation state to move and to buy this asset has um, the best position and i'm afraid that if the u.s ignores this and goes for a digital currency they shoot themselves in the foot because once one nation state that is at the scale of the u.s or a china buys this the price will go absolutely ballistic so what they do so say the U.S. next week announces, hey, we bought, let's say, uh, $400 trillion in Bitcoin. People will buy Bitcoin like there's no tomorrow. And just by buying that, the supply, so because they own this part of the supply, the price will go up like this. So for them, it's the, it's the easiest way to get a lot of revenue. It's completely in their favor to, to get on board with this. The, the central bank digital currency is the polar opposite of that. And I take it very seriously as a threat because if your internet is being censored, if your social credit score is being measured, it's going to be very hard to escape that. But I would say Bitcoin is your best bet to get out of that. And well, you should so, probably so also... So what you're saying is there would be two options. One would be that the U.S. government could actually buy Bitcoin, become yeah. part of the Bitcoin network. The other option would yes. be that the U.S. government could devise their own digital currency system and try to compete with Bitcoin or try to force people into using only their digital currency. That, the last one, yes. That's very possible. I mean, they're already alluding to it. Um, I think it's a very big possibility that they will eventually buy Bitcoin. And I think it would be stupid if they don't. I know there's people already in government that are trying to persuade um, these people. But, and I would also look at it as a, reserve asset for the US. So they would have gold as that before. It is in their best interest to have that as Bitcoin because it gives them energy. Bitcoin is energy. It gives them power that, that can last over space and over time. And if they don't do that, they will lose significant position. And so I actually think that there, it will be smaller nation states that will benefit most from this because they have less to lose. Um, so they will take on more risk. But the, the central bank digital currency is very much a possibility. And it's very much something to be on the lookout for. And yeah, I would say this is an absolutely bad thing and an absolutely malevolent thing. But I, I also remain optimistic enough that, that people, especially in the US of A, have the sense and the, the freedom 
values to um, to oppose this uh, strongly. Um, but eventually it cannot last this type of oppression because they'll just impoverish themselves by doing it. It's the same with Soviet Russia, where you can be this oppressive force, but you're just going to lose so much value if you if you ignore the free market, if you ignore the consumer, if you ignore the the inhabitants uh, and their needs, you're just going to rot. So it's not a great strategy, I'd say, but it's definitely a possibility. And as you know, we've been, yeah, sorry. So the very strength of uh, Bitcoin is that it's this highly distributed network as yes. opposed to a government digital currency, which would be a top-down network. Yes, <laughs> Right. exactly, exactly. So one of the other thoughts that occurred to me while I was re-listening to that episode, because I'm always thinking in terms of Michael Levin and his um, bioelectric language that keeps the cells functioning in the way that they do. Yeah. Started to see the world through that lens now, because if you think about everything scaling, it's if you see something in society and then you see something in these cells, you go, okay, well, there's a, there's a got to be some sort of a truth there. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about in, in uh, Keynesian, I, I mean, in uh, Austrian economics, there's this idea of distribution of labor um, being very powerful and helping economies to flourish. Yeah. And I wondered if that is somehow now. this is just a, this is just a thought I had while I was walking this morning. So it hasn't gotten thought through at all, but I wonder if there's something analogous there to differentiation among cells. Because when an organism starts out, it starts out with one cell that then divides and depending on the organism up to a certain point, there might be 50 cells or a thousand cells that are still undifferentiated before they start to differentiate into their different groups that execute different parts of the body plan. <clears throat> so I'm wondering if maybe the distribution of labor is somehow analogous to this differentiation among cells in that the differentiation among cells is not something that is a, a top-down decision that's made because the top of that organism doesn't exist yet, right? Mm. When it's yes, yes. differentiating at the bottom level. Comes into being. But, but perhaps this has something to do with degrees of freedom. You know, Robert's always talking about max, maximizing freedom. And there's also something at the particle level that particles seek the maximum degree of freedom. So even when you remove space from um, tiny, tiny particles, if they're, let's say you have all these particles that are the same shape and you remove space from them and they get into a tighter and tighter and tighter place, at a certain point, they will automatically shift into a crystalline structure that's very... Um, very complicated, very beautiful crystalline structure in which every particle has the maximum degree of freedom that it can have in that much space. Yeah. So it actually orders, it, it gets into a kind of a frozen order when it hits this critical phase, right? So differentiation of labor and exchange of resources and individual goals but all of these are being drawn towards a higher purpose and i wonder yeah. if that all fits in somehow it sounds like to me of course i am completely ignorant of the the biological dimension <laughs> you're opposing to me i have listened to michael levin by the way with 
your, your conversation with him and John Favik was extremely interesting. Um, although I find it sometimes hard to keep up with given my uh, <laughs> biological ignorance. But it definitely, a lot of it rings true where, where once you have this division of labor, something higher starts to emerge and you start to also act in service of it. And maybe at the start, you were acting in your own self-interest, but before you know it, you're actually attributing to, to that higher good, um, which I think is also the, be- the beauty of the, of the free market. I don't know if that's similar to the cells that you yeah, described. Keep, keep talking. I, I really like what you're, what you're saying there. So flesh that out for me. Well, to go a bit, to expand a bit on this, this idea of, of division of labor and then attributing um, to something higher, it's, I think it's similar to what people have when they get into Bitcoin. Because I myself got into Bitcoin because I was just trying to like up my number. So I got the freedom to choose what I wanted to, uh, what I wanted to put my wealth in, what I wanted to put my energy in. And what did I do? I went into the system that that has a has a limited supply. And by doing that, I was actually helping the system, this higher thing, evolve. And funnily enough, you start to change by it because your your horizon starts to shift to a long-term horizon. And you start to like to, to add value to other people's lives to a degree where you stop doing it for the greed aspect of it and you start doing it to help people and your mind shifts um, and you become something whole else and you become part of that that whole, I guess. I don't know if that helps at all. Well, I mean, I think that's the, that has to be the exact picture of what's happening with the cells. Because one of the questions that Michael Levin asked himself was, when, when the cells differentiate and there's a group of cells that are tasked with building an arm and another group of cells that are tasked with building an eye, there seems to be some sort of subroutine built into the system that gives them the body plan, but, mm. but what's not built into the system is knowing where to execute that body plan. So the thing that tells them where to build the eye or where to build the arm is some sort of bioelectric communication that's going on among the cells. Mm. That bioelectric communication is telling them where to go to build the arm, let's say. Now, most organisms are bilateral, and so they're building two arms simultaneously with hands and fingers, you know, if it's a frog or if it's a human being. Mm -hmm. So how do the cells know when to stop building the arm? how to stop when the fingers are the proper length and how do the cells know that that this group over here building the left side is going to end up at the same size as this group over here on the right side. And there's no indication in the DNA or in the genome of how that can happen. The only thing that that he can see is this bioelectric communication that's taking place among the cells. So there's some sort of distributed cognition among the cells. And in my mind, there has to also be some sort of higher purpose that they're moving towards. And so he was having a conversation on his academic channel the other day with this guy named Richard Watson, who is in this kind of combination biology, 
cyber tech space. And he was processing the idea that maybe there's something that has to do with resonance or harmonics or something. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe there is something to do with resonance that's guiding this higher, that allows them to see what this higher calling is, you know, that yeah. they're moving towards. And of course, the metaphysics of quality, you know, with Robert Breedlove, he, or, I mean, Robert Breedlove is Persig. teaching about Robert Persig, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the metaphysics of quality. So, yeah, there's some connection in all of that. Yeah. Are we assuming agency um, here on this level? Yes. We are. And this is the thing that's, this is the thing that's really um, controversial would be the right word. I don't know. But when, when Levin and Watson are talking and sometimes they've had conversations with Ian McGilchrist, sometimes they've had conversations with Mark Solms, who is a neuroscientist, sometimes with Chris Fields, who is a guy in physics, they openly say how damaging it can be to your intellectual career if you dare to use the word agency when you're talking about something as small as cells or particles. But they're coming to the conclusion that there is some sort of agency even at that level, that there's some kind of distributed cognition and something to do with agency. I mean, they haven't they haven't nailed it down and they're very reluctant to talk about a higher purpose. <laughs> so I, I mean, I don't a know scientist. if they get there without a higher purpose, but. Yeah, no, I understand. Of course they have to be conservative being scientists yeah. and uh, with their careers, like you say. I, I find it very interesting. It's also something the Austrians, of course, they don't really talk about, uh, to go a bit back to that, they don't talk about anything below the human in terms of actions. Mm -hmm. So the fundamental principle is that humans engage in purposeful behavior. I don't know how far that scales down. I don't know how to look at that with animals, let alone uh, cells or microorganisms. But it, it sounds extremely interesting what you're posing. I'd love to uh, I'd love to actually watch this talk. If you could. Uh, yeah, I, I will. I will put all of these academic talks in the in the uh, that sounds good. information section because <clears throat> They're getting at some really interesting stuff. Now, it's a little bit like watching paint dry because they're feeling into these ideas. They're not speaking out of some preformed idea that they each already have. They're all working together into this space of ideas where they haven't yet kind of clicked in. So you have to kind of Sometimes I leave the conversations on in the background and just kind of wait until something waves in that connects to something. But yeah. but they're very, very interesting conversations. Yeah, I usually try yeah. to speed through some of them and then listen again or slow down when it gets uh, particularly fruitful. Yeah, I, I really yeah. want to have a conversation with this Richard Watson guy because he is a very um, adventurous thinker. Let's put it oh, that yeah. way. Yeah. So you're about to to ruin his academic career <laughs> by venturing into the unknown. Well, so far he has not responded to my invitation, so I don't know if he's if he's just busy or you know. Obviously, my channel is very small, so 
there's not a lot of incentive to come on my channel unless I can provide some value to them. So I've been trying to think of who I could introduce him to that would provide some value to him. Yeah. I'm still working on that. But he's spoken to Levin. Yes. Um, so yeah. you've spoken to him as well. Well, one of the reasons that I, the way that I, I think the reason that, of course, Levin will talk on anybody's channel, but some of these people. <laughs> so, so I figured if I, introduce them to someone else who has information that they need that that mashup sort of provides value to both of those people so then i don't feel so guilty about asking them to spend time on my channel because they're getting value out of it right yeah that's my value proposition <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good with the cells um so this agency because you're 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 highlighting a specific situation here with these cells is, is this in any way similar to what you see at higher levels? Um, like, is this an ana anomaly you see? Is that why you, why you bring it up with, with these cells and the higher purpose? Is this something that you see everywhere? Well, I mean, for these cells, there must be some higher purpose. Why are they building it all? Right? A cell has a choice. <clears throat> a cell can go off and do its own thing, which then becomes cancer. Because if, if a cell gets disconnected from its network and just proliferates, that's cancer because it's not in community with any other cells to produce anything. There's no, there's no value proposition there, except I want to do my own thing. And that becomes cancer. Other cells have some sort of value proposition that, that, they're, that they're uniting towards the purpose of building the organism. I mean, maybe that sounds woo, but no, it doesn't. But, but it, a cell at every point in its development has to make some sort of a choice. It's either choosing to unite with the other cells toward a purpose, or it's choosing to go off and do its own thing. Is there any explanation for it going off and doing its own thing? Well, I think one of the things that Levin talks about is that it disconnects itself from this bioelectric communication network. Now, yes. he sometimes uses the language, and he, I mean, obviously, he's anthropomorphizing, and yeah, absolutely. he doesn't mean anything by it, but he'll sometimes yeah. use the language of, well, you know, I don't want to participate in this anymore. <clears throat> Maybe I don't want to be a skin cell. Maybe I want to go off and do my own thing. You know, another one of the things he talks about sometimes, which is very interesting, is that they have taken frog skin cells, scraped them off the frog, just skin cells. They're, they're not, they don't have any other purpose except to make skin on a frog. And they dump them into a Petri dish with some medium. Oh yeah. I've heard this example. Yeah, and they will join yeah. forces and they will create a little living organism that's got motility and, um, and that can actually even go around and gather up little skin cells and make baby xenobots. So the big xenobots are making baby xenobots by gathering up skin cells into other units. Now, oh, that's fascinating. He says they'd rather do that than, than go and, and uh, be tied into this bigger unit. But from my perspective, Maybe there's 
a deeper purpose in being part of the bigger unit and submitting to your place in the in the organism that you actually have a higher purpose in being a skin cell that can provide protection for this larger organism than just going off and having two or three generations in a Petri dish, you know, um, I think there's a higher purpose of being part of the hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. So, I think it also does scale up and down. It definitely yeah. has to. It's what Breedlove believes this as well. He thinks that reality works fractally. I think that's true. I think the the microcosm is the macrocosm. Um, and it's also why I think you see Peugeot talking about the higher agencies. I sometimes <laughs> find it funny when he speaks about it being kind of a, a naive thing to say that that we are it. You know what I mean? Like we're the highest. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where there's no there's no higher agency. And I think that's quite a good argument, to be honest. It's Of course, scientifically, it's hard to speak about these things. Um, but I also think that science, by its essence, is a limitation. And sometimes I'm a bit frustrated, I guess, with some of the thinkers that will never venture any further. It's why I appreciate Pajot, because as you said in the first episode, um, speaking about the highest truth can be found in scripture. Um, I think that's far beyond the scientific. So I think sometimes you have to venture beyond it for sure. Um, if you want to actually understand the world fully, because science will always remain this limit. But it's fun to see so many people approaching it with this scientific lens uh, because it makes it more accessible. It's definitely how I got in, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but now when I listen again to, for example, Peterson um, talking about these scientific studies and the first time I was like, wow, that's crazy. I was like, yeah, that's it's pretty cool. <laughs> but there's a whole other like truth out there that your science will never even grasp. Um, so I like listening to scientists, but also Peugeot is like someone that that talks about things that I know I don't understand, but I also know that there's a deep truth in there. Mm -hmm. Like I have to listen to this guy, whereas the scientists, they have an end. Uh, there's a limit to their to their thinking for sure. But I really appreciate them for playing their part in this uh, in this scientific world. I mean, they're here for a reason. So Peterson was one of the ones that turned me on to Gödel's incompleteness theorem, though. I mean, the first place I ran into that was in Maps of Meaning. And and the more you go down that kind of rabbit hole and study what Gödel was really all about and what he was thinking about and all the implications of that, the more you begin to see that outside of every inside, there has to be a higher. <laughs> and and it, that just scales up as far as you can go. Um, yeah until you get to the um, the limits of the universe, because our God is a creator God who lives outside the universe as well as inside of it. So even the universe has an inside that you have to get outside of in order to understand it. <clears throat> so you have to be able to scale all the way up in order to get closer to the truth. Oh yeah. But then there's this, farther and farther down as well that we get to look at but you you can't you know how somebody said one time if if you dissect something to figure out how it works now it's dead <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so, you lose the you lose the hole by looking at yeah. the parts 
Yeah. But to speak a bit about Peterson before we end, um, I also don't think he is stuck in his scientism at all. Mm-hmm. He just seems to be this in-between figure where I'm like, with everyone you've encountered, with everyone you've encountered and all the people you've spoken to and all the ideas you present, I don't understand how he remains somehow this middleman because he's been exposed to so much truth. I I don't know. He confuses me sometimes a bit. I actually went to see him here in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam. And he always has this, this very strong scientific side to him, which really distinguishes him from uh, a Peugeot, for example. But then I also think that might just be Jordan and his part to play. And he might just have to stay this, this bridge. I don't know how you feel about that, but. Well, I mean, that's definitely the way I feel. I feel that it's sort of his, I mean, I'm, I'm adding my own spin on this, but to me, it's sort of his own burden to bear. Yes. That, that, that he's at this point, he's not allowed to step one way or the other. And I mean, I the, only, the only way I can put that into clearer terms is there have been times that my husband has been in a job that has been extremely stressful. Maybe he's got a boss that's, you know, very um, harsh, judgmental, unappreciative or whatever. And the first impulse would be to jump and say, I'm getting out of here. But when he prays about it, there are times when God just clearly says to him, you need to stay there until it's time. And then when the time arises, it becomes clear. But sometimes the time doesn't arise for many years. And then you're in this very difficult situation for many years. But if you know that you're in that place because that's where you're supposed to be, then there are things that you can learn while you're there. Or as Peterson would say, there are treasures hidden in the darkness, you know, and you can find those treasures there are patterns the, the way I kind of think about it is that there are patterns in the chaos that are that in the chaos don't always make sense. But if you bring them out of the chaos and into the light, then yeah. you can see it's like uh, Stephen Wolfram's slices of com- computational reducibility become apparent once you take the pattern out of the chaos and bring it back into the order. So yeah. When you're in a chaotic situation, sometimes you have to be there long enough in order for those patterns to become apparent to you. And then you have those patterns that you can take with you back into the regular world. Yeah. And it's also, I think, with a long-term perspective as well, that you can understand that this is a part of it. It's very hard to see that when you're completely immersed in the chaos and in the moment of of absolute pain and, and the burden to bear. But I think the stance to take when you're stuck in that um, and you're not gonna get out of that is always to to look up and to mm-hmm. experience it as a well it's a burden to bear but at the same time it's a blessing i mean there's a reason there's evil out there and i don't talk about this lightly of course but if if it was only good then there was no good there mm-hmm. has to be an evil to yeah to battle to learn from and it's also one of the reasons i mean we were speaking a lot about <laughs> central bank digital currencies and uh, and money and corruption and all these things but if it wasn't for these things we wouldn't see the tremendous good in people and i think that a lot of people might be scared right now but i mean you and i share a conviction that that i think god is good and love wins and 
my optimism is extremely high because of that, not just because of Bitcoin, um, which I don't think should be absolutized in, in its importance because it remains mm -hmm. on the corporeal level, of course, as mm -hmm. Wolfgang Smith would say. Uh, but much more fundamentally, I know that uh, that love wins, and I trust I trust my God. I hope that doesn't turn too many people off, but uh, it's why I uh, I feel safe. That that's a good place to wrap up because you brought in Wolfgang, who is going to be the topic for episode three. So I look I'm very excited to speaking with you again, Lucas. And uh, yeah, me too. We'll touch base before that, so we can figure out how to corral his 15 books or whatever. <laughs> My goodness. I've been reading a lot though. Yeah. We're going to have to see how we do it. Cause I also, in an hour and a half, it might be a bit difficult to. Uh... Yeah. Well, I mean, there's plenty of time. Uh, the runway is long. However much time you want to put into it, I'm here. So. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of readings and I've been listening a lot to him and uh, he's a, a treasure trove and I'm glad the, the corner found him. So that's exciting, Karen. Thank you so much okay. for today. Thank you, Lucas. Talk to you All later. Right. Bye -bye. Have a good one.